If you go and grab your Bibles and open up the book of First, uh, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, chapter number two. Once again, please make sure you keep Pastor Bill and the men in your prayers, as they are off in Pakistan right now. Second Corinthians, chapter number two. We'll read one verse. Once again, this is a continuation of last week. We're talking about the devil's deadly devices. So, Second Corinthians, chapter two, verse number eleven. We'll read that verse, then we'll pray, and we'll do a quick bit of review. From when we went over last week, and then we'll jump back into this week. Once again, this is more of teaching, not, le- not so much uh, preaching. There will be some preaching here and there, but much more of teaching about what the devil's devices are. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse number 11, the Bible says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let us pray to your Father. I pray to help us to learn and grow uh, from the sermon uh, that, I, that you have laid on my heart, Father. I pray that you help us to grow from that, help us to learn, so we cannot be ignorant of the devil's devices. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. may be seated. Uh, last week, once again, we began going over the, the deadly devices that Satan has. And right here, the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, we talked a little about last week, just by quick means to review. We had verses 1 through 7, and he's talking here, and he's trying to tell them. He said, look, the first letter I wrote unto you, it was pretty bad. Okay, there were, If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see this was probably one of the most messed up churches that you could imagine. Some of the most heinous and wicked things were going on in this church, the church of Corinth. Uh, and they were proud of it, too. They thought, we're, we're cutting edge. We're, we, we're with the times. We know what we're doing. We know how to reach people, very similar to what you see in many churches today. They, they think they're cutting edge. They, they, they think they're, they're going around the corner and reaching more people. But what they're doing is they're allowing wickedness and worldliness to come into the church and to pollute the truth. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to them and letting them know Hey guys, listen, what you're doing is, is wrong. It's not even close. And he is very pointed in many of these areas. He even says to them, he says, look, I can't even speak to you as spiritual. Meaning, I can't even speak to you like you're a Christian because of how carnal that you are. I have to speak to you like you're a child in Christ. Like you're someone that just got saved or isn't even, isn't even saved because of how far you've removed yourself from what is true and from what is right. So understand the Apostle Paul in writing that letter understood that, uh, once again, they, they could get mad, they could get upset and say, you know what, we're done. We're not listening to this Paul guy anymore. Who cares? Who does he think he is? Even though he's the one that probably witnessed the most of them, started a church, all these different things. But the Apostle Paul was stepping out on a limb here trying to show his love for them. And you see that in verses 1 through 7. He says, look... I am doing this not because I hate you, not because I want to grieve you. I am doing this because I want you to know how you ought to live. I want you to know that I love you and I care about you. Okay, love is shown through making sure the right decision is made. Love is not shown by coddling and pampering and those type of things. That's how maybe a a form of love or affection is shown. But true love is shown by saying, you know what, even if I might hurt you a little bit now, I want to make sure when later time comes, greater pain does not befall you. And this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to let them know. He said, look, this might hurt you a little bit now. This might grieve you a little bit now. And that's not my goal. I don't want to grieve you. I don't want to cause you sadness. But I want to make sure that when the time comes, you can have great joy at knowing we did what was right. We may not have started off right. We may have gone off the path a little bit. But we got back on and did what was right. And so the Apostle Paul, now he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians, and he's trying to, to let them know, he's like, look, I want you to understand, I did not write that letter to grieve you. I did not write that letter to make you sad. I wrote that letter because I love you, because I have an affection towards you, and I want to make sure you do what is right. And then he goes on to explain it more, and then in verse number 11 he says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So what he's trying to say is like, look, the book of 1 Corinthians is just full of the Apostle Paul trying to warn them of the different devices that Satan will use against us. The different tactics and military things that the devil will do to try and break us down, to cause us to trip up, to cause us to fail, to cause us to sin, and therefore hinder our ability to be used of God. 
And so we see that there. That's what he's saying, that we might, for we are not ignorant of his, talking about the devil, talking about Satan, Satan's devices. I used an example uh, of, of, from uh, uh, Homer and the, the, the city of Troy and how they stole away uh, Helen of Sparta, the king's wife, and the king sent his brother uh, uh, Agamemnon after him, and for 10 years they fought, and then, then they decided, all right, it's no, no longer worth it, and they left the Trojan horse. Okay, once again, if the, if the Trojans were privy to the device that the Greeks were trying to use on them, obviously they would not have brought that into their city, and which would therefore cause their defeat. If they were not ignorant of the fact that this wasn't some harmless horse, but if they were not ignorant to that fact, if they were uh, not ignorant to the fact that there were men, soldiers hiding in it, plotting the downfall of Troy, obviously they would have never brought that into their city. So once again, we, that's why we have to understand and learn these things, that what is the devil going to try to use against me? What is the devil going to try to use to trip me up, to cause me to fall? Last week we first looked at... Doubt. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The devil said to Eve, Yea, hath God said. That's the very first tactic he used on mankind. The very first one he used. One of his first things he ever said to Eve was, Yea, hath God said. He asked her straight to her face, very blatantly causing and throwing doubt in her face. Did God really say that? Yea, hath God said you cannot eat this? Did God really say that? Very beginning. And once again, just a few words later, just a few verses later, she sees it and she saw it was good to eat. It was pleasurable to make one wise. And so she ate from it. And so we see doubt is one of the first devices that, this, that Satan will use against us. We talked about faith and it's and doubt. Doubt and faith are not one of the same. They, they are not uh, mixes of one another. You either have faith or you have doubt. Now, as people, as human beings, as fallen creatures, many times we have doubt, although we should not. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says it very plainly, without faith it is impossible to please God. A lot of people like to use uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, the three Hebrew boys, as an example of, oh, uh, well that's an example of faith that was mixed with doubt. No, that's not what it is at all. Uh, that was a statement of them understanding that God is not my lapdog that I snap and, here God, I, I need help, and then God comes running. That was them stating, I know who God is. I know the power that God has. And that's why they said, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Basically, they're saying, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, we honor you. We respect you. But we're not going to be careful about how we say this. Our God will deliver us. And then they said, but if not, they're letting the king know, look, our God is all powerful. We do not know how he works or why he's going to work. He is supernatural. Once again, I said this to, other, uh, to others in the past. I said, look, if, if, if you as a finite being want a supernatural God that you can totally understand, then that means you have a very weak and anemic God. Yeah. Let's be honest. You are finite, meaning you are limited. So if you want to understand an unlimited God with your limited capacity, that means your God is now limited. Yeah. He is no longer unlimited. So I want a God who... No matter how hard, no matter how long I know, there are certain things that I just don't understand. That he always will go above and beyond what I can understand, what I can think. His ways are above our ways. We do not understand everything that God does, and we never will. And that's okay, because he is the sovereign one. So we see that there. We see in Matthew chapter 14, doubt comes in. Even during a miracle, we, look at, we looked at Peter. Peter... And the other apostles were on the waves. We looked, we looked at this during our Sunday school lesson this past week. Okay, Jesus told the apostles, he said, look, guys, I need you to go across the sea. I'll meet, with up, I'll meet up with you later. Jesus Christ had been, had been teaching and preaching and healing all day long. And he said, guys, I need you to go across the sea. I'm going to go apart by myself. I'll meet up with you later. And so that's what they did. They got in the boat. They went across. And in the Bible says, when they were in the midst of the sea, a storm rose up. So when they're in the middle of the sea, a storm rose up. Jesus Christ was not with them. Long story short, they see a figure walking towards them on the water. Obviously, their first reaction was, it's a ghost. We're all going to die. Okay, because it's a storm, and they see a figure walking towards them on top of the water. 
in the middle of a storm. Once again, a lot of times I think our imagination doesn't do it justice. This was a storm. The Bible says the wind was boisterous and the waves were coming in. So this was a bad storm. This wasn't like, you know, a little, you know, a little uh, turbulence or anything like that. This was an, a pretty intense storm that they were going through and they see someone just, you know, walking on the water towards them. Yep. Obviously that would be, you know, a rather jolting sight. But as you get closer, Peter says to him, if, if, if that's you, Lord, bid me come. And Jesus Christ said, come. He said, okay, Peter, you asked, now do it. Now I wonder if sometimes Peter said that and he's like, ooh, should I have just said that? And then he says, come, like, oh, man, and now I have to do it. But he did. To Peter's credit, he did. Yeah. The Bible says he stepped out of the boat and he began to walk yeah. on the waves. But... The Bible says when he saw the winds boisterous and he saw the waves around him, that immediately he began to sink. That, what does that show us? That goes to show us one thing is that even when the most miraculous of times in our life, there is always a chance that we'll doubt if we do not keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. So doubt is the, the enemy of faith. You doubt, your faith is being taken over by that doubt. Faith and doubt cannot encompass the same area. Where there is doubt, there is no faith. So I need to remove my doubt and replace it with faith. So that's the first thing we see that the devil uses against us as doubt. The second thing is the fruit of doubt, disbelief. If I continue to doubt and I do not replace my doubt and overcome my doubt with faith, it will turn into disbelief. Yeah. Uh, in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, we looked at that last week where it talks about how, first off, the devil said, Yea, hath God said... And then he goes blatantly into lies about it. About, no, you see, God did that because he knows it's going it's, it's to make you wise. It's going to give you knowledge of good and evil and all these different things. And then that's when the Bible says that that's when Eve began to look upon it and to think upon it and to say, you know what? It looks nice. It doesn't look like, you know, it's something that's going to be bad. It doesn't look moldy or anything like that. You know, it doesn't look like it's going to be nasty tasting. And, and we see doubt is starting to turn into disbelief. Did God really say that? I wonder if God really meant what he said. Am I just misunderstanding the way God was trying to te talk to me? The, or, or did, you know what, did Adam just give me the bad, wrong message? Was Adam not paying attention to the Lord and he gave me the wrong message? Uh, the, all these things, you never know. But what we see here, it's doubt that's turning into disbelief. Disbelief is the final form of doubt. Doubt that goes unchecked will turn into disbelief. Doubt will never stay doubt. Doubt, if it goes unchecked and does not get combated with by your faith in the Lord, it will turn into disbelief. And we see in Matthew 13, verses 58, the Bible says, And he, meaning Jesus Christ, could not do many mighty works there in his own hometown. This is talking about Nazareth. There is that Nazareth. He could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The one thing that will bind the hands of God, that God says, I will not move, I will not work, is when we do not believe in him. If I say, I don't believe God can do this, or I don't believe God will do this, God says, you're right. I won't. Because uh, God is a God that gave us free choice. God is not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force you to make a decision. So if you say, I don't believe God is going to do it. I don't believe God can do it. Then God says, okay, you have your free choice. I have given you the freedom to choose. And you chose against me. So I will not force myself upon you. Now, God may still work in the circumstances around your life, but God will not force himself on you. God will not force himself upon you. So disbelief is the final form of doubt. And we looked at that. We looked at Hebrews 3.12 where it talks about the evil heart of disbelief departing from the living God. That's what God equates it to. God equates disbelief to the evil heart. You're a heart that's encompassed and rotted with evil. And you've departed from the living God because you've chosen to not believe what is true, what the Bible teaches. The Lord is very serious about disbelief. He has no patience and understanding for disbelief. God does not say, oh, I understand. God says, no, I do not. God says, think about this. From the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. From the very beginning, God has been giving. 
from the very beginning. He gave this world. He gave creation. He gave life. He gave a relationship to man. He gave man a companion. All these things God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave. And then man turns around and says, ah, forget it. I'm going to use it the way I want to use it. So understand, God is not some megalomaniacal uh, dictator that's ruling over everything uh, like, you know, an evil overlord. From the very beginning, God was giving and God was giving and God was giving. And even when we, mankind, took what God gave us and took God's goodwill and turned it against him to do what we wanted with it, God still said, I'll give you another chance. Let me send my son so I can give you another chance chance. That's who God is. That's who God is. The God that said, even though I've given and given and given and given again, I'll give one more time. And I'll give one more time. You see, God does not understand and will not get your disbelief. God is not okay with it. God has been very, very particular. It is impossible to please me. That's what he says. Without faith, You cannot please God. If these loom in your life, doubt and disbelief, you will not please the Father. God says, I sent my son for you. He died for you. I have done everything for you. So no, I do not understand. I do not get, and he will not tolerate unbelief. Understand as we go forward in the devil's devices, these two are the end game. Doubt and disbelief. This is the devil's end game. This is what he desires. Every thing the devil does is to try to get us to these final two of disbelief. I just don't believe God anymore. That's the devil's goal. That is where he wants us to get to, is I don't trust God anymore. I don't trust him at all. I don't believe him at all. I don't believe anything about him. That's the devil's goal. Everything the devil does, every single one of his devices that Paul was trying to warn these people about in the church of Corinth, all of them are trying to lead us to disbelief in God. So, last week we also looked at disappointment. Disappointment. Disappointment is a letdown. The feeling that is left when when expectations are not met. Webster's 1828 says, defeat or failure of expectation, hope, wish, desire, or intention, the miscarriage of uh, of design or plan. Okay, disappointment can be a great range of different things. Everyone has faced disappointments. Everyone has faced small disappointments. Everyone has faced great disappointments, some greater than others. But everyone has and will continue to face disappointment as long as we live on this sin-cursed world. Disappointment is common to man. And anyone who is honest will admit that many times in their life and many times for the rest of our lives will face disappointing times. Things that I thought were going to happen that did not happen. But the Christian, the wise Christian that is walking with the Lord and going along with the Lord, when disappointment comes, will understand this is an appointment from God. Disappointment is an appointment that God has allowed in my life to allow me to grow. That's why God allows it. Romans 8.28 says, uh, for all things work together for good to them that love God. That's, That's the promise. And then the stipulation, the prerequisite for the promises to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Once again, we love to talk about the promises of God without looking at the prerequisite. God says there's a prerequisite to my promise. I'll give you this and I'll give it to you abundantly without reservation. But this is what I need you to do. This is what I require. This is what I need from you. That first off, you love me and that you're called according to my purpose. Jesus Christ summed it up in this way. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do what's right. Follow my words. Follow the Bible. That's what Jesus Christ said. If you love me, keep my commandments. So they pretty much go one in the same. To those that love me and are called according to my purpose, they're pretty much one in the same. If I love him, I will be called according to his purpose. If I'm called according to his purpose, I'm showing my love. So God is trying to say, look, if you are truly someone that loves me and is following after me, I will make sure whatever you face will work out for good. See, this verse has gotten distorted many times because you have many people who know the Bible but are not living according to, the, uh, according to the will of God. They do not love God the way that they should. And so they're expecting everything to work out the way that it should. 
when you aren't fulfilling the prerequisite for the promise. So this verse has gotten distorted many times. Many people don't believe it. They think it's, uh, you know, poetical or things like that. No, God is very serious, but just as serious as he is about his promise, he is about the prerequisite. So a wise Christian, a Christian that is right with the Lord, will understand disappointment is an opportunity for me to grow in the Lord. However God has involved, whatever God has in store, God allow this to happen to me for a reason. Okay? For the next three, we're going to talk about, last week we talked about disappointment, we stopped at discouragement. The next one we'll talk about is despair. These are, just like doubt and disbelief, are two levels of the same deal. Disappointment, discouragement, and despair are different levels. Disappointment is the entry level. This is where it all begins. Expectations were not met, so the Bible says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. I had a hope that it was going to be like this, and it did not work out that way. The bigger the hope is, the greater the sickness that would come along with it. It gives that idea of, you know, your, 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 your stomach falling, getting that pit in your stomach when something tragic happens or when you thought something was going to happen and, and it just didn't work. It just didn't go the way that you believed it was going to go. So we see there in Romans 8.28, I think of Job. Job is a shining example of these three, these three things. I mean, you couldn't have a more letdown than what Job had. Once again, I, talk, I talked about it last time. I mean, understand being Job. The, the servants were coming, and before one servant could even finish the horrific news that he had, another servant was lining up behind him, yep. letting him know, all oh, your camels have all been stolen away, and oh, all the servants are dead. I am only alive to tell you. All of your cattle... Fire rained down from heaven. They're all dead. All your servants are dead. I am only alive to tell you. And thing after thing after thing until it comes down to all your children were at the same house. They were having a party. They were having a get-together. A whirlwind come in, knocked the house over. They're all dead. All the servants are dead. I am only alive to tell you. Everything in a matter of minutes was gone. And then just a few days later, the devil gets permission from God to take away Job's health. Yeah. I mean, thing after thing, and then his friends, and then his wife. Yeah. Yeah. All these things coming in on Job and causing Job great distress and great, great disappointment. But what did Job have to say? Blessed be the name yeah. of the Lord. Amen. God giveth. God taketh. I came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. If God decided to take it all away, that's God's choice. Because, you see, Job understood. I, I may have worked hard, but let's be honest. God is the one that gave the increase. Job understood it's God's world. None of this was mine anyways. This is all a gift from God. So if God decided to take it away, then God decided to take it away. God understood, Job understood the principle of Romans 8.28 long before it was written in that form that it was. Job understood, I love God. I'm doing what I can and what I know to please God. So I'm going to trust God still has my best in heart. And Job faced such disappointment. The disappointment that Job faced. The next we saw, as we talked about, is discouragement. Disappointment that, once again, goes unlooked after or uh, uh, unhindered will lead to discouragement. Sometimes the disappointment is so great, it may go almost straight into discouragement. Discouragement, is, according to Romans, uh, Webster's 1828, is the act of disheartening or depriving of courage. The act of deterring or dissuading from an undertaking, the act of depressing confidence, the, uh, that which destroys or abates courage, that which suppresses confidence or hope, that which deters or tends to deter from an undertaking. Basically, he was talking about it's such a strong disappointment. It's such a strong thing that has happened in your life that I just don't feel like going anymore. I just don't want to take another step. I am discouraged. The wind truly has been let out of your sails. It's just falling apart. You just don't have the umption to even get up in the morning. 
I just don't have the option to get up. I, I just don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. That's discouragement. And when it's so heavy, when it's so strong on you that you just feel like, I can't even go on anymore. I can't even go to work. It's just such a burden on me. Disappointment is often, if not always, the precursor to discouragement. There are a few times that that something is so great that your disappointment almost initially turns into discouragement with how strong it is. But disappointment always is the precursor. So if disappointment is not taken care of, it will often lead to disappointment. Sometimes it's so great that it will automatically go to discouragement. Once again, I think of Mary and Martha. Just imagine their situation. Their brother is deathly ill. They are sure he's going to die. And they find out Jesus is nearby, a couple days' journey away. So they send, and they find him, and they say, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. We know you care about him. We know you love him. And we know you have the power to save him. They knew. They had faith. They had faith that Jesus Christ could do what needed to be done. And so they said, Jesus, you just need to come. And he said, okay, guys, I'll be there. I'll come. I'll make it. And they said, great. We're going to head on in front of you. You guys just get there as soon as you can. But just imagine being them. It's day after day after day goes by and Jesus doesn't show up. And then he finally does show up and they tell him like, Jesus, you're too late. He's been dead days now. We've already put him in the the tomb. Just imagine that disappointment, that discouragement. Because it's one thing to be disappointed by man, but it's another thing to be disappointed by what's your thought of what God was going to do. Because they were sure God is going to save our brother. God is going to get there just in time and everything is going to be just good. Maybe they even thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God came in just in time for them. I, I remember the story. I remember the story when I was young about those three Hebrew boys that were, during the persecution, while, while they were away from Israel, they got stolen away, and they stood for God, and God came in just in time. I think that's what's going to happen with Jesus. He's going to come in. Lazarus may just be taking his last few breaths, and Jesus is going to come in and heal him. But it didn't go in the way that they thought it was going to. But as Jesus said about the one man that was blind from birth. He said, sometimes things happen to people so I can show how strong I truly am. See, Jesus Christ knew exactly what was going on. Jesus Christ was not late. He was right on time. He said, I I, I think it would be more beneficial to show my true power. See, Jesus Christ has much more power than to heal sickness and illness and physical deformities and problems. Jesus Christ is power over death because he is God. He is the one, his Father, God, is the one that created all. He is all powerful. Death has no bearings on our God and Jesus Christ. But just imagine the discouragement that they were facing because I thought for sure Jesus Christ was going to come in time. I thought for sure he was going to be there, but he wasn't. I can't imagine as they're laying around Lazarus, as he's taking his last three breaths, one of them is probably looking out the window, looking out the door. I don't see him yet. And then day after day after day goes by, and then he finally shows up. The discouragement. Last week we talked about David. In 1 Samuel chapter 30. Understand what he was facing. All his men left everything they had. They had nothing left because they decided to follow David. They no longer even had, they pretty much had nothing left in Israel, their homeland. Nothing was left back there. They had gotten chased out of their homelands because they were following David. David, because they chose to give him their allegiance. 
David, I would die for you. And many of them would do things that were unbelievable. Many of these men would become known as David's mighty men. Men that would do things literally laying down their lives. Some of them even laying down their lives just to get David a drink of his favorite well from Bethlehem. Like that's how sincere and dedicated these men were. Just to give you an idea of how dedicated these men that followed David were. And to give you an idea of how far and deep into discouragement and despair that they had gone in. They were in the enemy country of Philistia, and I'm sure there were some of them that doubted David and said, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is a good idea. But if David's doing it, then I'll do it too. Then I'll follow David. And they did. And while David and the men were gone from the city, they were in the Ziklag, while they were gone from the city, Amalekites came, stole away their families, stole away their children, burned their houses to the ground, and were gone. And the Bible says that they returned to the city, and the Bible says that they wept until they had no more power to weep. I don't know how many people have truly gotten to that place in their life where they have wept so much and they are weeping so bitterly, they're crying so much and so hard that they physically cannot cry anymore. Like that's, that's another level. That's beyond a broken heart. That's utter devastation and the pits of despair. And understand, these men that we've already established would do anything for David. Anything. They gave David everything they had. Even their lives. But now they lost it all. Truly. Their possessions, that's one thing. Homes in Israel, that's one thing. But their wives and children, gone. For all they know, they're probably dead. And the Bible says that they had gotten so sorrowful that they even spake of stoning David, the man they had sworn their lives to. The man that some of them would sacrifice their life, willing to sacrifice their life just to get him a drink of his favorite water. Like, I mean, that's dedication to a whole new level. Like, there are very few people, I believe, alive today that would have that dedication to a man. Say, I would, if you, if you really like that water, I'll sacrifice my life just so you can have that water. Those men were sitting there thinking, let's just kill him. Let's just kill him. My wife is gone. My kids are gone. The pit of despair. Now think about David. Everything that those men have gone through, David has gone through. David went from a trusted member in Saul's court, Saul's soldiers, one of the most valiant soldiers that Saul ever had, to being on the run like a dog, sleeping in caves, sleeping under trees, just trying to stay alive. Just trying to stay one step ahead so I don't die in my sleep. All that. And David understands what these men have done for him. Mm-hmm. So imagine what he was facing. Because yeah. his wives are gone. His home was burnt down. Mm-hmm. All of it was gone. But he also bore the burden of all these men that I didn't choose for them to come after me. I didn't choose for them to sacrifice and to give me their allegiance. They gave it to me willingly. And I'm sure in that moment he had his doubts of, maybe if I hadn't have gone down to Philistia, maybe if I wasn't here, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe if I just tried to go talk to Saul one more time. I can't imagine the things that were going on in his brain, the thoughts that were going on inside of David's head. But he had the wherewithal and the fortitude to, in all that, probably one of the most darkest times of his life, 
to say, let me take a second. The Bible says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. You see, when we're discouraged, we are forgetting the promises of God that God even gave back to the Israelites that if you keep my promises, I will hold you. I will always be there. I will always look after you. I think of Joshua as well. First thing God said to Joshua, he says, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And over and over and over again, God tells Joshua, be strong and of good courage because I am going to be your guide. I will be the one that will lead you, Joshua. You just be strong and have good courage. I will take care. I wonder if those are some of the things David might have thought of, the promises that God gave his forefathers, the things that God had already done for David, giving the strength to defeat a lion and a bear by himself as a teenage boy, alone in his father's fields, watching over his father's sheep, killing a lion and a bear by himself. I don't care how big a bear is. I don't care if it was a baby bear. I don't care if it was a full-grown bear. That's a big deal. As a teenager, killing a bear by yourself, I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Especially if it was a full-grown bear. Like, I don't know if you've seen pictures or videos of full-grown bears. Oh, man, those, those things are scary. Okay. They'll use you for a toothpick. I mean, they're unbelievable. And then God uses him to kill a giant. Once yeah. again, well, not once again, Goliath, the Bible says he was trained from his youth, meaning his whole entire life was trained to be a warrior. It wasn't like just a big guy they found on the street, like, oh, you, you, could, you could be a good warrior. You know, like we think with some people, you're tall, you'd be good at basketball, okay? Uh, it's not like that. It was someone that from his youth, from a childhood, he had been trained and groomed to be a warrior, a man of war. So it wasn't some just big, tall, strong guy. It was a big, tall, strong guy that from a time of being a child, he was trained how to fight and how to fight well. And God used him, David, to defeat Goliath. I wonder about the things that David had to encourage himself. Is one of the things I told in chapel this past week. If you do not have the faithfulness and the wherewithal to look back on the good times that God has done for you and the promises God has given you now when things are going fine, when things are good, what makes you think that when the bad times come, you'll have the wherewithal and the fortitude and the faithfulness to look back on those? If you can't do it now when things are good, why do you think you'll be able to when times are bad? The principle applies, faithful in little, faithful in much. God says, I can trust you with something bigger because you've proven yourself faithful when things are good. When you're on the mountaintop, you say, man, God is good. But even in the valley, you say, God is good. That's what Job did. That's what David did. Once again, David encouraged himself in the pits of despair. Despair means this. Once again, despair is the next step beyond discouragement. It's the next device the devil uses, despair, the pits of despair. Despair means this, Webster's 18.28, hopelessness, a hopeless state, a destitution of hope or expectation. Notice the, the, the growth of each one. First, it was just a letdown. I thought it was going to be this, but it didn't work out that way. And then that letdown gets so strong that it's starting to, I'm just losing my courage just to take another step. And then we're to the place of total hopelessness. It's destitute. There is nothing left. This truly is the state of, I'm just not getting up. You're in your bed. Alarm goes off. I'm just not getting up. What's the point? What's the point of doing what I'm supposed to do? of doing this, of doing that. Your disappointment turned into discouragement and it turned into despair. And it's eating you alive. It's literally eating your life away. You're not eating. 
You're not doing anything because what's the point? Why do it anymore? Understand, that's what David was facing. True despair. Everything was gone. Just imagine in your mind's eye, they're in Ziklag. And the Bible says that they burned the entire city down, all the homes. So they're literally standing in a smoldering pile of ash. They've weeped to the place they physically can no longer cry. It's all gone. Their tears are dry, not because things are good, because they've cried it all they can. And they're to the place that they're even speaking of murdering David. And David has all that on his shoulders and his own burdens. I think of also Ruth chapter 1, verse number 20. True despair. Ruth chapter 1, verse number 20. The Bible says, And she, this is Naomi speaking, And she said unto them, She's talking to those that said, Oh, are you Naomi? It's been so long since we've seen you. If you do not know, Naomi was married to a man by the name of Elimelech. They had two children, Malon and Kilion. Famine came to Israel. Crops were not growing. Things were not looking good. Food was getting scarce. But God made a promise. I will always take care of you. Just trust me. Even when it seems like you can't, just trust me. But Elimelech thought he knew better. And so he took his family and they went to Moab, a heathen country just right across the border. And he said, look, we're just going to go there till things get better in Bethlehem. We'll be there for a month, maybe two, maybe a year or two at most, just until the famine dies down and food is again in Bethlehem and we'll go straight back. Ten years later, they're still there. Elimelech, her husband, is dead. Both of her sons are dead. And she's left with two daughters-in-law of Moabites. Not Israelites. Moabites. And Naomi finally said, look, i got to go back. There's nothing left for me here. And she even tries to dissuade her two daughters-in-law from going with her. And one, Orpah, went back. But Ruth said, no, I want to be with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I want to be with you. And even after all that, Naomi comes back to Israel, and this is what she has to say. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. This is what she says. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, saying the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Talk about a lady that's in despair. She went out happy as could be. Husband that loved and cared for her. Two boys. Life seemed great. And she comes back a decade or so later with nothing. The despair that she allowed to fester in her life turned into bitterness. Her despair. Call me not Naomi. Don't call me by my name. Call me Mara. It means bitter. It, it, the, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She's blaming God. God allowed this to happen in my life. He took my husband. He took my sons. I went out full and I've come back empty. The despair. Job. I mean, if there's a man that had any excuse to be in despair, it'd be Job. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he was doing everything he was supposed to do. He was a man of God, upright, eschewed evil, meaning I want nothing to do with it. And everything happened. And it's not like it was one quick boop, you know, it was a whole week and then everything was back to normal. This was a long ordeal, possibly months of dragging on 
of utter despair that Job was facing. Seemingly nothing left to live for. But through it all, he stayed true. Even if you're trying to do everything right, but you've gotten into gloom and doom, you've given in to despair. I faced a disappointment. I tried to work with it. It turned into discouragement. I tried to work with it, but now I'm facing despair. I've tried everything I can. Do not forget 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Do not forget, no matter how bad it gets, despair is never the answer for the Christian. No matter how horrific it may seem, despair is never the answer. God says, I'm on the throne, and I've got it under control. If you trust me, I'll lead you through. It may be troubling. It may be perplexing. You may have no idea what's right from left, what's up from down. You may be in such utter darkness. You have no clue, but trust that I will lead you on. See, to despair is to forget that God is still working in our lives. That no matter how dark it may become, God still has a reason why he's allowed this to come. Just remember... Things do not always happen for you. Sometimes they happen for others around you. Once again, Pastor Bell says it many times. How many people, when they face a hard time in their life, look at Job and say, well, you know, if Job was able to make it through that, I think I can make it through this. Sometimes God allows great hardship to come on people so you can be an encouragement and a blessing to others of, you know what? I don't know half of the things they've gone through, but they've still stayed true to the Lord. So if they're able to do it, then I'll go one more day. Then I'll take one more step. Even though I may be feeling despair and gloom and doom, I don't want to take another step. I don't even want to get up in the morning. I don't want to even eat food. But I know they made through some pretty hard times. So I'll try to as well. I'm troubled. I'm perplexed. But I'm not in despair. Don't ever forget that. The devices of the devil. Once again, remember, the devil is always trying to get you to doubt and disbelief. If he gets you there, he wins. He wins if he gets you to that place. And every device ultimately is going to lead to doubt and disbelief. The next one we see here, distraction. Peter sinking in the waves. You say, well, that was doubting. Jesus Christ himself said it. Yeah, but what, what brought him to doubt? He was distracted. He saw the waves and the wind boisterous around him. He allowed his eyes to be taken off of Jesus Christ and to be turned away. Distraction will lead to doubt. Because we take our eyes off of God. We take our eyes off of the one that cares for us. We take our eyes off of the one that's looking after us. And, and we start thinking about this. We start thinking about that. And God says, look, just keep your eyes on me. Just keep your eyes on me and I will watch over you. I will take care of you. Distraction. It, it seems so harmless. I, I just looked away. I mean, just imagine Peter. He just looked away for a second and poof, immediately began to sink. We allow ourselves to become distracted. Sometimes it's even good things, things that aren't even wrong. Maybe even sometimes the things that God has even blessed us with. Possessions, houses, cars. Yeah, we should take care of it. But the point where it starts to become a distraction from what God has already wanted us to do, then that's causing problems. Maybe even it's family. Too often people use their family or even their children as an excuse not to serve the Lord. I would, but I've got these kids. Okay. Remember, children are inheritors of the Lord. God says, I gave you those children because I trusted you. If I didn't want to give you those kids, I wouldn't have given you those kids. 
God says, I trusted you. I gave you a blessing on my behalf. The Bible talks about children being like quivers in the, the sheaf of an arrow, of archer. They're his tool. But oftentimes we allow things God blesses us with to distract us from what is the main objective. The main objective is to honor and please God, to do whatever he wants. But too often we get sidetracked. We get lost in the weeds. Oh, here's this over here and here's this over here. But God says, look, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes stayed upon me. Just as with Peter, distraction can often lead to doubt. Double-mindedness. Double-mindedness means having different minds at, the, at different times. Unsettled, unwavering, unstable, undetermined. Also has the idea of being double-souled. Oftentimes when I think of double-mindedness, I, I think of, uh, of Israel when he's talking to his children on his deathbed and he's giving them a rundown of their lives. And when he says about his oldest, he says, Reuben, he says, Reuben, you're unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel. A double-minded person is, that's what Reuben was. He was a double-minded man. Oh, oh, let's get Joseph. Oh, we shouldn't do that, guys. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Oh, we shouldn't. He's double-minded. He keeps on going back and forth. He's unstable as water. And that's the way God looks at us when we're double-minded. God says, just do what's right. Sell out. Give it all you've got. God does not like the double-minded person. They are lukewarm. They're trying to ride the fence. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation that it's an abomination to God. It makes him want to spew them out of his mouth. It's lukewarm. God says, I would rather you were hot or cold. Either get all in or get all out. Stop trying to ride the fence. That's the double-minded man. Oh, I like this. Ooh, but I like that. Ooh, but I like that. God says, look, I'd rather you get all in and do what's right and sell, your soul, sell yourself out, or I'd rather you just get out and just go cold. I don't want you to be lukewarm, going back and forth, being real wishy-washy. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's what James 1.8 says. A double-minded man unstable in all his ways. He can't be trusted. Someone that's double-minded, you never know which way he's going to go. If I give him a task, is he going to do this or is he going to do that? Well, it depends on the day. Depends how he's feeling. Depends what he thinks about it. The Bible says in James 4, 8, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. See, to be double-minded means you're away from the Lord. Because for me to be close to God and to cleanse my hands, I can no longer be double-minded. Being double-minded is I go back and forth, and I'm not sure which way I want to go. I'm not sure which way I want to fall. I'm not sure who I want to go after. Once again, I think of Reuben. His father told him his problem, that he was unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel. Can you imagine hearing that from your father? Once again, it's not like he's an 18-year-old boy. Reuben is a full-grown man. In his 40s, probably even his 50s or 60s by this time in his life. And Israel says to him, Son, you're unstable. You can't be trusted. At least the other boys were sure of what they wanted to do. You're just so unstable. See, double-mindedness is a device of the devil. Because he knows it's a weakness. And he knows it's very easy to get us into that way of double-guessing and, ooh, what about this and what about this and what about that? And we just double-guess our way all the way through. And God says, if you're double-minded, you're unstable in everything. You can't be trusted. You're unstable as water. You're this one way, and then you're down, and you're up, and then you're down. You never know what they're going to be. You never know what they're going to be thinking. You never know how they're going to be. It's a device that Satan uses against us. They're two-faced, double-souled. That's an attribute of the devil. You never know. You never know. Double-mindedness. 
Next, dishonesty. Dishonesty is the want of probity. Another way of saying it, it's the want of integrity in principle. The want of faithfulness. A disposition to cheat or defraud. To deceive and betray. These are attributes of a device of the devil, dishonesty. A disposition. I am more naturally inclined to cheat or defraud. That's what we're talking about, disposition. Disposition is something that you're naturally inclined to do. These people say you have a cheery disposition. That means they're naturally more, if they're going to default to something, they're going to be default to cheery. So this person, if they default to anything, they're going to go back to cheating and defrauding. That's a dishonest person. A dishonesty. Please remember, we live in a day and age that likes to sugarcoat or whitewash things. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, the, the little white lie. I, I don't think Jesus Christ ever said anything about a little white lie. I don't think the Bible ever says anything about a little white lie. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter number 6, God says these six things that they hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. A proud look is the first one. And second in line is a lying tongue. God has no place for a lying God has no value, no uh, stipulations, no wavering for dishonesty. God has no place for it. Lying, cheating, or trying to portray that we are more and pretend that we are everything that we should be as adults, as parents, and ultimately as Christians, that's dishonesty. Pastor Bell has talked about it before. Parents, you've got to stop pretending like you've got it all together and everything's perfect. You're giving an unreal expectation to your children first and foremost, and you're lying to them. You're saying, I am perfect. Okay, that's what you're showing. And what are they supposed to think? They know they're not perfect. They know they fall. They know they mess up. So if they're, if they're messing up, then that means they're never going to live up to your standard. And eventually they'll get to the place of, why try? If the standard is always something I can never attain to, then why do it anymore? That's dishonesty. You're lying to your children. You may not be saying it to their face, but you're deceiving them, making them believe you're something that you are not. I, I am the paragon of virtue. I am holy in every way of my life. It's one thing to be the example of your children. It's another thing to lie to your children and to make them believe you are something that you're not. That's something that I have to make sure I do not do as a teacher or a principal or, or things in that area of showing them that, yeah, I, I try my best to do what's right, but I will fail many times. It's dishonest to make people believe you are better than what you are. It's dishonest. The Apostle Paul had no problem telling people. The Apostle Paul said to himself, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. And then he talked about being sinner. He said, of whom I am chief. Based on I am the chiefest of sinners. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. So if we think we're all that in a bag of chips, and we're the most holy thing to ever grace this earth, and the Apostle Paul said to himself, said, look, guys, I, I'm the chief of sinner. You want to know who's the biggest sinner in this world? He said, it's me. That's who is. I'm the worst one. I'm a wretched man. That's what he had to say about himself. But we fancy ourselves to be much better. And it's lying. It's deceitful. Not being what we were supposed to be is cheating those that are around us and mainly those that follow after us. If I'm not being what I should be, I'm not being the right example. And I'm cheating those that come behind me. It's one thing to pretend like I'm not some, that I'm something that I'm not. But on the same token, if I'm not what I'm supposed to be, I am cheating them out of a good godly example. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. So if I am not training them in the way that they should go by my own actions, then I am cheating them out of what God has for them. I am cheating them of their ability to learn and to grow and to do what God has for them. It's dishonest. Dishonesty 
is everywhere. But we live in a day and age that likes to downplay it. Oh, we're very truthful people. Sure. Depending on what your definition of truthfulness is. If it's your own pet definition, sure, I'm sure you are. But according to the Bible and God's standards, in many ways we're much more like the devil in our lack of honesty and our ways of deceiving people. Which goes into our next one of deceit. Webster's 18.28, deceit is literally a catching or ensnaring. Hence, the misleading of a, of a person. The leading of another person to believe what is false. Or not to believe what is true and thus to ensnare him. This goes even deeper than just being dishonest. About saying something and doing something else or, or, or living away. This is the telling the half-truths, or saying something in such a way as to come off as something else. It's deceitful. Did you leave the door open? The door was open? Okay, you're trying to evade the question without getting in trouble. You're trying to deceive. You're trying to say something in such a way as it infers it wasn't you. So you can say later on, you, can, you don't lose any sleepover because I didn't lie. Oh, hoity-toity, okay, good for you. But you deceived. Which in some ways is much more evil and wicked than dishonesty. Because at least dishonesty, you at least have the umption to say what you're trying to say. Deception is much, much more evil because now you're trying to ensnare someone it's almost like the the hunter in a trap you're trying to trap someone because you're trying to trick them that's who david that's who uh, jacob was jacob was known as a trickster jacob paid so much in his life for the things that he did he tricked his brother he tricked his father, and so many times throughout Jacob's life, he was paying back for those deceptions. He was deceived by his own father-in-law to marry someone he didn't want to marry. That's a pretty big deception. I wouldn't be okay with that, okay? Waking up after your wedding and you turn over and it's not the person you thought you married? Bad day. That, it's a bad, bad day. After working for seven years, it wasn't like just, you know, oh, I love it, let's get married. Seven years. He worked seven years for somebody, and he woke up, and it wasn't her. I mean, ooh, man, that would be a bad day. And then, later on in Jacob's life, his own wives begin to deceive him, and ultimately his own sons deceive him about the life of Joseph. Is this your son's coat? We found this, Dad, and we weren't sure, so we picked it up. And we wanted to ask you, is this Joseph's coat? They deceived their own father. For almost 20 years, Jacob believed Joseph was dead. I wonder how much heartache and grief Jacob could have gone over and not had to go through if he hadn't have lived a life of deceit and trickery as a younger man. How much did he set himself up for heartache and heartache and deception of himself because of his own action. Deceit. It's dangerous. The devil will use it. Oh, and he'll sit back and laugh. Oh, he's going to love it when he sits back and says, ooh, here they go again. And he knows. He knows the principle. You reap what you sow. And the devil says, ooh, just wait. I know what's coming to you. Because there's nothing that brings the devil more joy than to see 
God's children rebelling against him and then suffering because of it. It's a double whammy for the devil. They did something wrong, and I get to watch them suffer. I get to watch them have to go through hard times. The devil revels in it. He joys in our defeat. He joys in our failures. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob paid for his deceitfulness time and time again in his own life. Beware of deceit. See, to fall for the devil's device of deceit is to forget Jeremiah 17.9. The Bible says, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, to fall for deceit, to fall for the devil's deceit and begin using your own life and using your own wits to try and deceive people is to forget, I'm falling for my own deceit. The heart is deceitfully, deceit above all. You don't even understand how wicked and deceitful your own heart is. But you're going to pay for it. The devil and his devices. There's many more. There's more in this, and maybe one day we'll get to it. But for now, we'll leave us on that. Let's pray. Dear Father, I hope 